Well, good morning, and I'm happy to be here. Um, this is the second time I've been asked to share. A month ago, I joined you for my first time to challenge you and talk about what it really means to believe in Jesus in a way that saves. And today I'm going to challenge us again, myself included, in this area of overcoming doubt in God's word and really focusing on the subject of do we really believe those miracles of the Bible, those supernatural events that the Bible presents as historical. Do you truly believe them? Before I get into that, I'd just like to say that um, you heard a little bit about what I've been doing the last 12 hours or so. Uh, and that's why I'm dressed as I am, not quite as good as I should be probably to be up here teaching, but I may be leaving immediately from uh, teaching, and I'm not even sure I'll make it till the end of the service. I'm not sure where I'm going, though. Um, I respond to disasters. My responsibility on them is to really tell them what to do with the debris that's generated, to help them figure out a plan and to, to make it work as smoothly as possible but because there's at least four or five places in the state that have been hit pretty hard, I'm not sure what I'm going to do. I may end up at the command center that's here in Topeka, but uh, I just wanted you to know why I'm not dressed as nice as I should be probably and hope I can focus today as I teach because I really didn't sleep very much last night. Let's open in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this opportunity to teach again here at Lion and Lamb. Thank you for the confidence that the leaders have in me to be able to teach. And pray, Lord, that you would guide my words today, that you would uh, help me to teach accurately your truth as presented in Scripture. And if there's some of us here today who are struggling with doubt, especially in these areas regarding the supernatural aspects of the Bible, that you would strengthen their faith today, that you would show them ways to improve and grow stronger in their trust of your word. So help us all today, Lord, to grow in this area of stronger faith. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, um, we all know we live in a world that considers miracles myth or nonsense. At best, they're in the Bible from some people's perspective to give us a lesson. Sort of like Aesop's fables. Remember those if you're old enough. Um, or maybe some other ancient literature. But they're not there to believe that it really happened. And you have pressures every day that would try to turn you away from believing that this is true. But what I'm going to do is kind of walk us through some of the miracles, and then we're going to ultimately come to the point of if there is a little bit of doubt in your mind, what can we do about that? How can we work on that doubt. But last week we, we learned and celebrated Easter, the resurrection of Jesus, which is the most important miracle probably in the Bible. Paul said that if this wasn't true, we are to be pitied more than all people to believe in such a thing as this. But the Bible is filled with miracles. In fact, there's over 300 miracles in the Bible. I didn't count them. I got that from a reference. It's probably pretty accurate, I, I would think. Uh, but the Bible is filled with 
miracles as history. And a lot of those miracles in the Bible are foundational to our faith and what we believe. If you pull the miracles away, you lose really what it is that our faith is based upon in many different areas. So uh, we're going to talk some about what it means more to doubt and remove those miracles as historical events. Let's look at a few of the most best-known miracles in the Bible. I would say everybody in this room probably knows of some of these that I'm going to show. Even the youngest among us and even non-believers know about a lot of these miracles that we're going to look at. Noah's Ark. Uh, is an example, the flood that God brought on the earth, the plagues that hit Egypt. Most people know about that. Then when the Jews tried to leave Egypt, the uh, parting of the Red Sea, most everybody knows that. Everybody has seen Moses in the uh, in that movie, which I'm now not remembering the name of, where the Red Sea was parted. As they escaped from Pharaoh, or the Sodom and Gomorrah story where fire and brimstone rained down from heaven on the wicked cities to destroy them. Or a New Testament miracle of Jesus walking on the water. These are just a couple of the more common and well-known miracles of the Bible. But there are future miracles as well. The Bible uh, presents for us what we have to look forward to. It's actually a time of coming wrath and a time of hope in combination. There's the four horses of the apocalypse where seals are going to be open, and these horses symbolize the coming wrath of God, the disease and famine and war and pestilence that is going to come upon the earth in the last days when God is about to bring his final judgment. But believers, the saints, are not going to be they're going to be spared from God's wrath in the rapture, which I'm not going to talk about much detail of what that is, but we're going to be caught up in the clouds with Jesus as he returns. And Jesus will return at the end of that seven-year tribulation period with his heavenly army of angels. And that is to bring that final judgment when he returns. And following close behind will be the church that had either died prior or been raptured up. And then ultimately, at the end of a thousand-year reign, Jesus' thousand-year reign, we will have a new heaven and earth established. Again, these are miraculous supernatural events that are going to come upon the earth. And we live in a society right now that science fiction and the supernatural just saturates our culture. And it's worth bringing this up because it has some significance as we think about how confident we are in believing the biblical miracles. We've got a variety, a wide variety, that began really heavily in the 60s where we've got science fiction saturating our society. Everywhere we turn almost today, we see a movie or a TV program or there's books that are fantasy, uh, which is close to the same as science fiction, but it, it involves the supernatural. And because we have this kind of a situation that we live within, we might have a difficult time 
clearly distinguishing what is fantasy or science fiction and what is maybe a true example of the supernatural in the Bible. Well, I have to confess that I do like uh, science fiction. I have always liked it. I grew up with it, and I've enjoyed it. It's a good form of entertainment. But I would always say, I don't have any trouble understanding what is real and what isn't real. Uh, I can easily discern that these movies and TV programs and books and other things are, are not true, whereas the Bible miracles are true. Well, that may be that we can say with a nice, clean, black and white way that I'm going to believe the Bible miracles, but whether it's sci-fi or fairy tales or ancient literature, I'm going to reject it. And so we do have this ability to discern. And I think for the most part that's true. Now, it may not be exactly that much confidence that you would have to say, that there's absolutely not, every single biblical miracle is true. Because I think you could find some that would say, well, maybe some of them are there to teach a lesson. So maybe there's a few of them that we're going to reject as historically reliable. But for the most part, we're going to believe that they're all true. Most of the people in the room would probably agree to that. Now, some of you or some Christians may also wonder whether some aspects of science fiction could also be believed. For example, the uh, fact that we have a universe so large with billions and billions of stars and planets, if you do believe in the concept of evolution, you would probably have to conclude that, well, if evolution occurred on the Earth, it's probable that it occurred somewhere else. So maybe there is something alive out there in space in another world. It may not be like our life, but it may be life. So maybe you're not 100% fixated on the fact that there couldn't be life in space as presented in some of these science fiction books and movies. So there's a little bit of shakiness here that, that could exist in some believers as rather than simply black and white, believe all the Bible, reject all the rest. Now, before we really get further into this and start looking uh, more at relevant scripture and all of that, let's step back and make sure everybody understands what a miracle is and what a miracle is not. A miracle is not tossing a hundred coins in a row and getting heads each time. It wouldn't be finding a lot of bills while walking around the block. You know, people might say, what, that's a miracle. Well, it's not. It's a low probability event. It's something that wouldn't really happen. Uh, it may not happen in anyone's lifetime, but it may take billions of people doing this before it would finally happen because it is very low probability. But low probability does not constitute a miracle. What constitutes a miracle is something that's impossible based on the laws of science. That's the way we're going to define it today. That's the way that the world would teach you that miracles cannot occur because somehow the laws of science are being suspended. That is what a miracle is. It's supernatural. It means something outside the natural laws of science. It's unexplainable. No one can understand why the law was suspended in that case. 
and it is unpredictable. So um, some may say that the laws of science themselves are miracles. And I would say that it does meet at least the unexplainable part of it. For example, gravity. Why do two masses attract each other? The force of gravity. Nobody really understands why they attract. We just know they do, and we can measure that. We can measure it very accurately. But we don't know why, or we don't know why positive and negative charged things attract each other, and why two negatives may repel each other. But they do. But that's still a law of science. It's repeatable. It's predictable. It will always do the same thing. Now, if I jumped up in the air up here and I didn't fall back to the ground, that would be a miracle because the laws of gravity stopped working. So let's be sure we know the difference between a miracle and a low-probability event. Now, if you're living in our culture and you're willing to go out and tell somebody you believe in a miracle, you may or may not find yourself subject to ridicule or even persecution. If you work in a certain field, I work in a very technical scientific field um, for the most part, even though I have to get involved in politics some too, it's generally a technical field. And where I work, there could be the potential for someone to be persecuted or ridiculed if I was willing to just come right out and tell people that I believe the Bible's miracles are all historically accurate. College professors, as some of you probably know, are really in a dangerous position to do this and and likely to be persecuted if they did say something like that. There's a lot of websites out there that uh, anonymously present quotes. You don't really know where they came from, but I went in and looked at a few websites, and I found a few that I have the actual people's names. This one I don't, but it says so well what the world thinks about someone who believes in miracles, this worldly wisdom. Anyone who believes in the reality of such nonsense, meaning miracles, must be gullible or just plain stupid. That means you probably would be a person who this person would criticize in this manner, because I would say most of you would say you, you believe in miracles, the biblical miracles. A lot of you may know who Arthur C. Clarke is. He was the author of 2001, A Space Odyssey, and then there was a movie made. I don't know if the younger folks would have seen it, but I would guess all the older folks have uh, probably come across this. And he's quoted as saying, I've been unable to decide whether creationists were really mad, meaning insane, or just pretending to be mad. And then Richard Dawkins, who's a writer and avowed atheist, said, the resurrection and other Old Testament miracles are used for religious propaganda and are effective with an, with an audience of unsophisticates and children. So that's you in his mind. You're a pretty unsophisticated person, and a children might be children may be in the same class as willing to believe this nonsense in his mind and in the minds of so many. So this is what the world thinks. And that's the pressures. Now, these same people probably would believe 
that extraterrestrial, extraterrestrial life exists. They for sure believe in evolution, and they would say evolution has occurred everywhere. And so if we do have billions of stars, many with planets, it's almost certain that we would have life out there. And in fact, these same people who say you're a fool to believe in the biblical miracles would probably think it's a great idea to spend taxpayer money to look for ET life through organizations like the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, SETI, or NASA. If you look at NASA right now, a big part of their budget is to look for life in outer space. And every time they come up with anything that remotely might point in the direction of a potential that there was some life on Mars or somewhere else, even though I think they're stretching it, they end up getting so excited because right now I think that is probably one of their biggest goals. Now, I'm going to come to the hardest miracles that I could come up with in the Bible. And this is where I want to challenge you the most. I want to ask you to look deep inside of yourself and think to yourself, do I really believe these miracles? Jonah in the belly of a fish. Jonah supposedly was swallowed by the fish, lived there for three days, and then was vomited to the dry land so he could go and preach to Nineveh to repent. Do you really believe he lived three days in the belly of a fish? Or was this there for some other purpose? What about when Sodom and Gomorrah did burn and Lot and his family fled and his wife turned back and turned into a pillar of salt? Do you really believe that? Or was there some other lesson they're just trying to teach? What about when Noah built the ark, and as he approached completion, two of every animal kind, on their own, without any influence, from all over the world where they may have been, came to the ark, and they all behaved just perfectly, and walked onto the ark, and Noah cared for them for more than a year on the ark, as the floodwaters covered the earth. Do you believe all those things? And how about this one? Elijah. He was caught up. He never died. He was caught up to heaven in a fiery chariot and a whirlwind. Do you really believe that as a historical event? Well, doubting God's word is a dangerous thing, even these miracles, because I don't see anything there that tells us in his word that these were not real historical events that we just looked at. When you doubt God's word, to me, the biggest problem is if I'm going to just doubt some miracles and say they're there for lessons, where does doubt end? Where do you stop doubting? Which miracles are you going to doubt and which ones are you not going to doubt? Does it make sense to doubt some miracles but not the others when we just define miracles as being anything that suspends the laws of nature. Well, here's some examples of where the doubt can progressively become more dangerous. If you start with just the miracles, you could then say all the miracles, because for me to be logical, I'm, I can't accept any miracle. 
not just the few, like those hard ones that I just showed you. It's the Jesus Seminar. If any of you have ever heard of that, the Jesus Seminar threw everything supernatural out of the Bible a few decades ago. But maybe you'll say, okay, we'll throw the supernatural out. Do you stop there? Or do you say the spiritual realm? Isn't that supernatural too? The fact that there's a heaven and a hell, something outside of this physical universe that we live in? Well, if you're not going to stop there, or if you've gone that far, what about some of these other things? God's judgment and the internal, eternal consequences, which link back to those supernatural things. Or are you going to stop there? Are you going to just say his hard commands? The God I believe in isn't going to give commands like that to deny self totally. Or some of the other hard commands about hating your mother and father. Well, we know what that really means, but yet it's still a hard command to hate yourself even in such a way that he requires us to, to not love ourselves but to care more about others than ourselves. And then we can even jump all the way to the politically correct ideas of today, such as related to homosexuality or, or some of the other areas that uh, I think today's politically correct world would say, I'm not going to believe that part of the Bible either. So doubt really has the potential to spread very far into all of what we believe. And if we are selectively believing, only if we want to rule out a few miracles... It's hard to stop there because it becomes your own religion. You've made up your own religion. You become your own God. But you may say, that's not me. I'm not there. I believe it all. And, you know, I would say, if that's true, that's great. If you really are, are that, if your faith is that strong that you never have a doubt about any of these kind of things, I would just say, good for you because that would be God's hope for us. But we're going to talk a little bit about where doubt comes from and the fact that I believe every believer has a war going on inside of them. Every believer, through faith, has been saved and is indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And the fact that you are indwelled by the Holy Spirit means you're going to have a war in you. If you weren't indwelled by the Holy Spirit you would not have a war inside of you because the source of the doubt is Satan or those within this world system that we have that have been influenced by him. If you didn't have the Holy Spirit, you would not have a... the unbelief would be reigning in you. So instead, we've got the Holy Spirit counseling us And we've got Satan giving us and planting seeds of doubt. As Jesus said in John 8.44, he called Satan the father of lies, and there's no truth in him. He's the source of every false religion, every hollow and deceptive idea, including evolution or philosophical naturalism and other things that try to turn us from the truth. But we've got faith We've got the gift of God in us to serve as a, let's say, an immunization in a way. But it doesn't mean doubts will not come our way because Satan is continually at work. We know that he originated doubt in the Garden of Eden with Eve when Satan said to Eve, 
Did God really say you would die if you eat the forbidden fruit? That was a doubt that he was planting in her, and these kind of doubts continue to be planted in us today. Let's look a little bit more at faith. And um, Hebrews 11.1 1 defines faith as confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. And furthermore, I mentioned faith is a gift, but Ephesians 2.8 and 9 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourself. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So the faith that we have is a gift, and faith is about believing in something we do not see. We have not seen the kinds of miracles that I presented on the screen earlier today, but yet we believe in them. We believe in them by faith. We believe in God's worth by word by faith. Faith applies to every aspect of our relationship with God, including our acceptance of these miracles. So when we start doubting them, it is some reflection on the strength of our faith. So you may be saying, well, you're pretty confident that you believe all of these things, but doubts creep in from time to time. And you want to believe, you want to have stronger faith. You don't want to have doubts in these things. Even though the world would tell you, you would be a fool to believe these things, the Holy Spirit in you is telling you it's true, these miracles, but that does not stop doubt from creeping in. So, how in the world do we address this whole issue? Well, first, um, doubt shows up in the life of a Christian in ways that are damaging to our effectiveness. James 1.6 says, The one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. Well, if you are a doubting Christian, um, it's going to be tough to stand firm when trials strike or perhaps when a lie comes your way somehow. Um, I'd like to step back a minute and mention something about what really prompted me to teach on this message today, on this topic. Some of you know my son, Lucas. He's a junior at K-State, pre-med major. He comes home pretty often, every several weeks, since he's only over there in Manhattan. And a few weeks back, he was talking to me about how hard it is to not be influenced by the very strong philosophical naturalism that runs through every subject that he seems to take. Not just the science subjects, but it's everywhere that he's saying, how can these very intelligent, kind, thoughtful professors believe that anything supernatural is incorrect or nonsense and believe thoroughly in evolution and everything that comes with naturalism? How can they be so wrong? Every student, whether it's the younger students or all the way up through college, 
is presented with this kind of situation that they live within, where they have daily these arrows, these flaming darts of deception coming their way. And it is hard for them to stand firm. Answers in Genesis wrote a book called Already Gone. Some of you may have read that book that talked about how our children, when they go off to college, are already gone because of the strong, strong influences that they have encountered before that time. And then the last knockout punch comes when they arrive at college, when their faith, which is not as strong as it needs to be, is pretty easily uh, knocked out. It doesn't mean they've lost their salvation, but they may become ineffective in serving God. They may become ashamed of being able to present the gospel in a public setting. They've lost some peace and rest, and they have little hope in the promises. Lucas admits to me that he is not having the peace he had as a younger kid. So, doubt is really harmful, even if we doubt a little to start with, because it's going to grow and it can become very damaging in the life of Christians. Now, Ephesians chapter 6 is probably the best place to look for this war that I was talking about earlier that's going on in the minds of every Christian. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's pretty clear. It is a spiritual battle, and the battle must be fought in the spiritual realm if we're going to win it. How do you do that? Well, prayer is the way you enter the spiritual realm. And I'm going to say I'm a person who needs to do better in this, and my guess is we all need to do better in our prayer lives. We've been taught how to pray. We know what Jesus teaches us on how to pray, and he has served as an example for us in how to pray. But we are not good at praying. And this is an area that needs a lot of prayer, especially for our children and for ourselves and for all who come within our sphere of influence. Later in that chapter is where he says, pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. That's right after he talks about the fact that we've got a spiritual battle. Prayer is the answer. So, along with this prayer, which must be improved if we want to survive ourselves without doubt and combat it and reduce it and protect our children, we need to do some more than just pray. We need to take some actions, and there are some actions we can take to help with doubt. And I've come up with a few words, and I'm going to just real quick go through each one of these. Uh, could do a study on each one of these separately. But some of the things we can do, prepare, protect, prevent, present, provide. Preparing for spiritual battle, that very chapter of, um, of chapter 6 of Ephesians talks about the armor of God in between that first verse and the verse about praying. And I'm going to focus on two uh, defensive weapons that are provided there. The belt of truth is one of the things we need to prepare. We need to hide God's word in our hearts. And 
Where do we get that? We just get it from God's word. We have to spend time in it. And then again, it comes back to faith. Faith is what blocks those lies, what extinguishes those darts, those flaming arrows of lies that come from Satan to us every day, whether it's through TV, through a book you read, through a college professor, through a public school teacher, whoever it is that Satan is using to bring lies to you or your children. That shield of faith will block those lies. The other part of being prepared is being alert. These attacks are going to come. And Peter says, to be alert and of sober mind, your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. We all know this verse. But are we taking it to heart? Are we always alert? When we turn that computer on, are we alert as to what's possibly going to pop up? Or when we turn that TV on or rent a movie, are we ready? Are we alert of what is coming into our minds from what we're exposing ourselves to? Protecting yourself and others. And this is something that I want to say that you do have to protect yourself so that you can be effective. But a lot of you have responsibility to protect others. You may be protecting your children or a brother or sister. Some of you older guys, kids, who have a little brother or sister, you may have some responsibility for protecting them. If you're a teacher in the church or a leader, you have responsibility for protecting others, not just yourself. A couple verses that are relevant Philippians 4, 5, and 6. In every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds. So prayer, again, with thanksgiving, brings peace, and that guards our heart and mind. We need it guarded. Children, the best way to protect your children is to impress God's commandments on them. Teach them God's word. That's a paraphrase. Deuteronomy's got a lot about that subject, especially in chapter 6. Others, in Paul's letter to Timothy, he talks about how he, as a young man, still had responsibility for guarding what had been entrusted to his care. He had responsibility to ensure that these people around him would turn from this godless chatter and posing ideas which some have professed and departed from the faith. So we have a command, especially if we are in some kind of leadership role, to guard others. Prevent. You're not going to be able to stop the arrows from flying at you. They're going to come. Like I said, they could come directly from Satan or a demon, or they could come from somebody who's being used by them. You're going to have thoughts enter your mind. I just can't believe there's anyone who would say, I never have an evil thought. I never have a thought that is something that uh, God would uh, be displeased with. I'm so I think we all would have to admit something's going to come into our minds. Some of those may just be thoughts of normal pride and lust and other kind of fleshly thoughts. But we're going to have these thoughts about what I was talking today, about whether you truly believe God's word or whether you believe the arguments of the world about billions of years or evolution or the fear of ridicule. You're going to have those thoughts too. 
So what do we do when those thoughts come our way? Well, we take them captive. We, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. And we pray. That's how we take it captive. It begins with prayer. We have to recognize, first of all, that these thoughts, that's being alert too. Being alert is being ready for that thought to come into your mind. As soon as it comes into your mind, you pray. You pray that God would rid you of that thought. If it's a thought of doubt, that he would take that doubt away and that he would strengthen your belief. Present. This is one that I feel... um, It can apply to everybody, but it's mostly parents, teachers, leaders, where we've got formal teaching and training, and then there's more informal. We're called to train up our children in the ways of the Lord, to impress God's word upon them, as we just saw from Deuteronomy. But part of training is also identifying good or is presenting good apologetic arguments as to why is the scripture divine in nature. What can we show that demonstrates that? Or what can we show that would be the fatal flaws of evolutionary naturalism? That would be another whole topic that that I would love to sometime teach on, which would be the fatal flaws of that. Because my son Lucas, he he is a great student, smart kid, been through all this stuff, but the one thing that he wasn't remembering is the fatal flaws of evolutionary naturalism, things that make it so that it just can't be true. And so that's a topic that we need to train our children in. That's one of the things that does prepare them better when they go off to college, is be aware of the fatal flaws. The other thing is participate in learning with your family. That is more important than just sending them off to somewhere to be educated or trained, to Sunday school or to even another event that is to teach them the truth. Participate. Be part of it. By you being part of it, they see that it matters to you and it's important to you. And that has as much influence as what they were taught. Live like you really believe it. Show your faith through your deeds. That's part of presenting the fact that you do believe these things truly. Provide. We are called to provide money and time to teach. And that could be providing resources to the church or to other organizations that would teach God's word unapologetically and in a way that uh, is faithful to the word. By doing that, by providing these kind of resources, we are storing up treasures for ourselves in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. That is uh, a better place to put our savings than in the bank and get 0.1% interest, which is what I found out this week was what I was looking at. Can a Christian ever be doubt-free? This is the end of... uh, of my message, and as usual, I didn't even follow my notes, so (laughs) uh, I probably missed some good things that I meant to say. But to end, we want this question to be addressed. Can a Christian be doubt-free? Well, I don't think so. 
I don't think you can be 100% doubt-free unless you would say that I've taken them captive, so that makes me doubt-free. But I think all of you are occasionally going to have a thought enter your mind that challenges some aspect of God's word. Because Satan will never stop his attacks. The world will never stop its attacks, its attempt to get you to deny something in God's word. Now, Jesus, I want to come back to something he taught and a little bit more about faith. Jesus said that um, when Thomas, referred to as Doubting Thomas, he would not believe until he stick his fingers in the holes in his hand. And that's what he said. He wouldn't believe that Jesus rose from the dead until he saw it with his own eyes. Well, Jesus' answer to that was, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I think that's where a lot of us are right now. That's a sign of faith. The person, again, that's a definition, remember? Faith is, that's part of the definition of what it is. To believe in things that you have not seen. And that's what Jesus says here that there's a special blessing to the person who has faith strong enough to believe in something that they haven't seen. And isn't that what we're called to with the Bible? We haven't seen those miracles. We maybe would be more like Thomas, and as a believer, maybe our faith would be strengthened because we saw a miracle. But yet there's a special blessing for those who have not seen and yet believe. The fact that we would believe in these miracles of the Bible and not see them is a sign that we are trusting God and believing in him. And even if we're struggling with that some, we can pray that God will strengthen our faith and take away any of those doubts. So I'd like to say one last thing about Jesus. Those miracles that I showed that were the really hard ones, Jesus talked about those miracles as real historical events. He definitely referred to Noah and the ark, Jonah and the fish. He talked about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and even Lot's wife. So Jesus considered them historical and not just some story to teach us a lesson. So I thought that those hardest to believe ones, isn't that interesting that that's the ones Jesus specifically refers to? in his teaching. So, faith can overcome doubt with prayer and action. I think all of us need to work on this. We can work through these actions, but more than anything, we need to work on our prayer lives because that's where we really fight the battle in the spiritual realm. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time this morning here, and I know, Lord, I need my strength, my faith strengthened. I pray, Lord, that each person here would pray on a regular basis for their faith to be strengthened, that doubts to be eliminated. Pray, Lord, that each person here would put on that full armor of God each morning to protect them from the attacks that they for sure will receive and the battles that they will fight regarding your truth and your word. 
Pray, Lord, for the people who have been impacted by these storms. Pray that uh, there will be no casualties from people who have been injured, that they will recover, that the people will help in those communities, that there will be so much assistance from volunteers and from others to provide help that is needed. And pray that all those people who are assigned to do work to help these communities would have wisdom, your wisdom. And somehow, Lord, you would be glorified through the work of those who pull together to just fix the problems that came yesterday to Kansas. And we thank you for this church, for all your blessings on this church. And pray, Lord, that uh, you will just guide each person here in the coming week. In Jesus' name, amen.